Thank you for that ministry of music. I mentioned Barry Bickle to you in our prayer request, but I don't believe that I actually prayed for Barry by name, and so I'd like to do that at this time. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray for our brother Barry Bickle this morning. Certainly his life reminds us how frail we are and how in one moment we can be in such good health and at the next moment be in such dire need. We thank you, our Father, for sparing his life. We thank you, Lord, for the limited nature of what is a very serious situation. We thank you that there does not appear to be any spinal cord damage. We pray for these 24 hours and would ask that that swelling would not uh, develop. And we pray that uh, he would continue to heal without any complication, without any hindrances, without any setback. We know that there's still going to be an extended time in a neck brace that is going to be very uncomfortable. And we realize that right now he has a lot of bruises and hurts and pains. We pray that you would uh, use the morphine and other medications to help alleviate some of that pain. And then we pray for a speeding and a helpful healing process. We pray for Vicki, Lord, and comfort her as she's spending these hours with Mary in the hospital. We think of the children. And, uh, Lord, we pray for the doctors that you grant them wisdom, help them in the decisions that they make. We pray that you would restore our brother to complete health and strength soon, that he can be back worshiping with us and uh, serving you in the way that, that uh, I know that he desires. We pray for the family in the time that he's laid up, uh, all the financial issues and other hardships that are always associated with such things. Lord, again, we don't need to instruct you. We just cast our care upon you knowing you care for us. Lord, uh, we delight in knowing that uh, he is precious in your eyes. And so, Lord, do your will to your glory and your praise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of God's word is wonderful and precious. But this morning we are in a passage that is particularly magnificent in its Declaration as to who God is. These 26 verses of John chapter 17 have received a great deal of attention in Christendom. The Puritan preacher Thomas Manton preached 45 sermons out of these 26 verses. The Irish preacher Marcus Rainsford wrote an exposition of some 500 pages on these 26 verses. Even myself, in a time previous to this, I did a series on John chapter 17 that encompassed 12 messages. It wouldn't be difficult at all to preach a sermon on each verse of John 17:26. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to do that. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be in verses 1 through 5. But all of that leads me to say, obviously, we are not going to be able to plumb the depths of these verses. We're going to be pretty much on the surface. There is so much more that could be said, and perhaps we would even say should be said, about all of the marvelous teaching 
in John chapter 17. But in order to keep the continuity and to really be able to see the overarching purpose in this chapter, I'm going to deal with it in a less developed form. John chapter 17 is easily divided into three segments. It is a prayer. It is Christ's prayer to his Father. And it easily divides into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the immediate disciples. And in John 17, verses 20 to 26, Jesus then prays for all those who would believe as a result of the witness of the apostles, namely us. Us. So, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. And verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all those who in the future would yet believe. So this morning we focus on Jesus' prayer regarding himself. And the prayer regarding himself is that he would be glorified so that he in turn can glorify the Father. That he would be glorified so that he in turn would glorify the Father. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus' request is that he be glorified, so that he in turn can glorify the Father. Jesus prays this request at an appropriate time. Jesus lifts his eyes, which is a euphemism for prayer. He lifts his eyes to the Father in prayer and begins with the words, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. In the book of John, the hour is a pervenient thought. The hour is referred to time and time again. The hour that Jesus speaks of is the hour of glorification. John 2.4 Jesus said to her, that is to Mary, at the feast in Cana of Galilee, the wedding feast. Remember, they ran out of wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. The time has not yet come for my glorification. John twelve twenty three. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour was the hour of Jesus' death. In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, that is Jesus, 
And no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. They were trying to take hold of Jesus in order to put him to death, but they were unsuccessful because the hour, the appointed time, had not yet come. Again, in John chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Though, again, they wanted to take Jesus and to kill him, the time for his death had not yet come, and so they were unsuccessful. The hour was the time in which Jesus would return to the Father. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. So, in short, the hour to which Jesus speaks is the hour of his crucifixion. The time of his crucifixion. And all of the attending circumstances of that crucifixion are in view. Namely, his death, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, and the glory that he is going to receive in his entrance into glory. Jesus lived every day of his life, every conscious moment, every decision, in light of that hour, in light of that time in which he was going to be crucified. All of his life was lived in light of that circumstance. Jesus' prayer for his glorification was so that, in turn, he would be able to glorify the Father. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. G. Campbell Morgan writes, and I quote, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, for that is to the glory of God. What Jesus had in primary view as he went to the cross was the glory of God the Father. Listen to the prayer offered in John chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. Jesus says this. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There is no greater goal in life than to live one's life in such a way as God is glorified. We should use any acclaim, any praise, any adoration, any status that we receive in this life as a means of bringing honor and glory to God. Just as Jesus lived his life with the supreme intent of recognizing that final hour, that final 
moment in which he was going to die for a sinful mankind, we are to live our lives with a recognition that there is going to be an end to them as well. The psalmist said, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, to make decisions in light of our coming hour. But let's look at the rationale for Jesus' prayer of glorification. Why should Jesus be glorified? Well, first, the glorification of Jesus is in keeping with the authority that the Father had given to him. Look at verse 2. Even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind. Even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind. Now that needs to be unpacked. First, since Jesus had authority over all mankind, no one could take Jesus' life from him. Listen to the words of John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received of the Father. So he has complete authority over all mankind, so that no one is able to take his life from him. He lays it down. He lays it down. And Jesus exercised that authority to accomplish salvation. Look at verse 2. Even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind. Why? That to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus was granted this authority in order to accomplish salvation. And that authority is over every single human being. No one overthrows the purpose of God. And we're to see in Jesus' death, and we're to glorify Jesus... Because we're to see that no one took his life from him, but rather he laid it down of his own initiative. For Jesus had authority over everyone. For example, Jesus had authority over Judas. Jesus had chosen Judas to be a disciple. In John chapter 6, we read these words. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus chose Judas to be a disciple, knowing full well that Judas was going to betray him. From the very moment that Judas became a pretense follower of Jesus, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And not only did Jesus know that Judas would betray him, but Jesus 
even granted permission to Jesus, to, to Judas, excuse me, to, be, to betray Jesus. And so, at the feast of the Passover, after having washed the disciples' feet, Jesus says to Judas, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. What you do, do quickly. Knowing that Judas was going to betray him, Jesus sent him out and said, do it. And do it quickly. Jesus had authority over the Roman soldiers who arrested him. Listen to this account. As Jesus is taken prisoner in the garden. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in your place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? So, Jesus had authority over these guards. If Jesus didn't want to be taken, there would have been no way that they could take him. In fact, if you remember the account, when they come and they ask Jesus... If he is Jesus, he says, I am. And immediately they fall backwards. Jesus had authority over the guards. Jesus had authority over the crowds. You remember that Pontius Pilate offered to free either Barabbas or Jesus. And they cried out for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus had power. He had authority. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. But he's delivered up according to the determined plan, and foreknowledge of God. All of this was in keeping with the will of God. Jesus had authority over Pilate. Pilate was the governor who examined Jesus, and it would be Pilate's decision as to whether Jesus would die or not. And so in John chapter 19, we read these words. Pilate therefore said to him, that is Jesus, you do not speak to me, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. The irony of this all. Pilate says, I have the authority to crucify you or let you go. 
The crowds want Jesus crucified. And he yields to the will of the crowd because he's afraid. And he grants that Jesus be crucified. But the point is, Jesus has authority over all of this. He could have stopped it at any point at any time. Next. In keeping with the power that had been given to him over all mankind, Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has entrusted to his care. Look at verse 2. Even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus saves those who the Father has entrusted to him. God the Father entrusted people to Jesus' care. This idea is repeated throughout this entire chapter. The key words are, in verse 2, those whom thou hast given him. Those who thou hast given him. Look at verse 6. I manifested thy name to the men who thou gavest me. Out of the world thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. Verse 9. A very striking verse. I ask on their behalf. And now notice these words. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me. For they are thine. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me. He's talking about the people that have been entrusted to Jesus' care by God the Father. And I suppose one could make the argument and say, well, he's just talking about the immediate twelve disciples. So let's go to verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That comes down to our time. That comes down to us. I'm not praying just for you. I'm praying for those that are going to believe in the future. And then notice what verse 24 says. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me. We fall in that category of people that have been given to Jesus Christ. Next. In keeping with the power that God had given to Jesus over all mankind, Jesus gives eternal life to all those that the Father has entrusted to his care. Back to verse 2. Even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, that, and now this simple little phrase, to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. That everyone 
that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus gives eternal life. This thought is not unique to John chapter 17. It permeates the whole gospel of John. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 39. John six thirty-nine, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, notice that phrase again, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. God's will is that everyone who has been entrusted to the care of Jesus, that he would not lose a single one. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, now this phrase, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My sheep have been given to me by my Father. They hear my voice. They respond. Those who do not respond do so because they are not a part of his sheep. His sheep, he will not lose one. For no one can snatch them out of his father's hand. Next. Jesus glorifies the father by saving all those whom the father entrusted to his care. A nuance here. My last point was he saved all who were entrusted to his care. Now the emphasis is that he saves all who are entrusted to his care. Turn with me back to John 17. John 17, verse 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. There are a variety of ways in which Jesus glorified the Father while he was on earth. In fact, we cited a prayer that Jesus makes in chapter 12. 
Father, glorify thy name. And his response is, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus glorified his Father in three primary ways. First, he glorified the Father in the miracles that Jesus did. Matthew 9, 8. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So, God the Father was glorified through the miracles of Jesus. Secondly, God the Father was glorified through the teaching and preaching of Jesus. But in our text, and the primary way in which Jesus glorifies the Father is by having accomplished the work which the Father gave him to do. He glorifies God by accomplishing the work that God had given him to do. What was that work? The ultimate work of Jesus was to save a people. To save a people. To save a people. Not merely render people savable. Jesus didn't come to make it possible for you and me to be saved. He came to save us. And save us, he did. And save us, he did. Look at John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Only Judas, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas, it was not in the plan and purpose of God the Father that Judas be saved. And so, he wasn't saved. But, It's not because Judas was outside the authority of God. He was outside the purpose of God. The Father is glorified. Because Jesus saves the people that God entrusted to his care. He really saves them. Hang with me. Let's go to the third point. The realm of Jesus' glorification. Verse 5. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is a complete and universal glory. A glory which the Son of God left. In Philippians 2, just listen to these words. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What is exercised? What is emphasized 
is the obedience of Jesus. The obedience of Jesus. He was obedient even to the point of dying on the cross. Why? So that his Father would be glorified. A glory to which the Son of God returns that the God-man Jesus now enters into. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those which are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority is given to Jesus Christ. One day, everyone is going to acknowledge that authority. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Without exception. Without exception. Not a single soul. Not the most ardent atheist. Not the most ardent Christ-hater will escape bowing before Jesus and acknowledging his lordship. He is Lord. He is given authority over all flesh. Not just in the future, now. Now. Let me make some important distinctions for you. First, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. Let me say that again. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. I know you've been places probably where you've heard invitations and asking you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life and He is the Lord of every human being. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. You don't make Him Lord. You recognize His Lordship. You willingly submit to His Lordship. You welcome His Lordship. You are grateful for His Lordship. But you don't make Him Lord. The rest of the world fights against His Lordship. Rebel against His Lordship. Try to get out from under His Lordship. But their rejection and unwillingness to acknowledge His Lordship does not overthrow His Lordship one iota. They are still under His sovereignty. And one day they will bow. The psalmist says, the nations rage against Him. He sits in the heavens and laughs. God is sovereign. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would, please. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us 
in him, that is in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, and then notice these words, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The glory of God in salvation is his grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Unearned favor. Why did he choose you to be saved? And why did he choose me to be saved? I do not know. It is a mystery. I cannot answer that question. I can tell you on the basis that he did not choose. He did not choose me because of my goodness. And he did not choose me because of my faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no reason for us to puff out our chests and take any credit whatsoever in our salvation. None. There is nothing commendable in us. There is nothing that God rewards in us. It is solely because of the grace and goodness of God that we are saved. And that's why he is glorified. Because salvation is of God from beginning to end. And Jesus asks the Father, Glorify me that I may glorify you. Because I have accomplished your purpose. Your purpose in saving the people. Now when he says that, of course, he still has to die. And his prayer, in essence, is, God, sustain me in this final hour that I would accomplish your purpose, save your people, and you would be glorified. So, what's the application? Well, simply put, first, the Father is glorified in Jesus saving the elect. Time and time again. Those whom thou hast given to me. This is a glorious doctrine. For all praise and our salvation belongs to the triune God. The doctrine of election is not a doctrine that we should be ashamed of. It is not a doctrine that dishonors God. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. In seeking to honor and glorify God, Jesus reveals this truth to us. So that we would give God his proper due. Any other view of salvation robs God of his glory. Any other view diminishes the statement that Jesus has authority over all flesh. 
any other view raises mankind to a place where God's purpose is thwarted and his will is not accomplished. It is only in the teaching that God saves his people that we understand that God's will is not thwarted, his his purpose is not overcome, that God is not dethroned. We don't want to mitigate this great doctrine, this great truth, because it results in the honor and glory of God. Let us today leave as a thankful, grateful people for God saving us. And we can go away today and know that we are saved because he who begun a good work in you will perform it today of Christ because no one is able to snatch you out of God the Father's hand. The reason you know that you will be saved tomorrow is because it is God who saved you today. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the will of God who is not fickle. We don't sit here with a daisy saying, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He loved you before the foundation of the world. He loved you before the world was ever made and He will love you after the world ceases to exist. He will love you for all eternity future. And Jesus Christ receives the glory for accomplishing the will of God the Father. Let's pray.